Well, good morning. It's great to be with you. A massive passage, uh, lots to get through, so we'll jump in. Uh, As we do, many of you will know that uh, a lot of children's stories make use of the idea of a magic mirror. And so, for example, uh, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, the the queen has a magic mirror, and so she can ask it, mirror, mirror, on the wall, who's the fairest of them all? Uh, Or you have Beauty and the Beast, Uh, Belle gets a hands on an enchanted mirror. Uh, It's able to sort of show her, at least according to the movies, various different things. And then you've got Harry Potter and the Mirror of Erised. Any fans out there? Uh, if you are, you will know that Erised is what spelt backwards. And so it shows you, uh, according to Dumbledore, nothing more and nothing less than the deepest, most desperate desire of your hearts. Harry Potter fan. <laughs> now, I think the story of David in 2 Samuel 11 in some ways functions a bit like a magic mirror. I say that not because it's going to show you how beautiful you are, uh, not because it's going to show us the deepest, most desperate desire of our hearts, although actually that is getting a little closer. It's like a magic mirror because it shows us what even the most godly among us are capable of doing if we harden our hearts against God and his word. See, for the last couple of weeks, uh, we've been tracing the story of the remarkable rise of King David and all that God has enabled him to do. And so we've seen him unite the kingdom of Israel. We've seen him uh, take his, uh, the, the capital city, bring the Ark of the Lord into Jerusalem, and then just last week, show incredible kindness to his enemies. And what's more, from the first time we met David, We've seen him to be a man of conspicuous righteousness. Right? This is a guy who seems to continually go out of his way, even inconvenience himself in order to do the right thing and avoid any uh, even perception that he's doing the wrong thing. Now, he's still human, and so there have been moments where he's stumbled along the way. But for the most part, we've seen in David a dim reflection of his great descendant the Lord Jesus Christ. But 2 Samuel 11 is the pivot point. Uh, The series is called Rise and Fall. So far we've seen him rise. Uh, Today we're going to see him fall. This time, when we look at David, we don't see a dim reflection of Jesus. Actually, if anything, we see a reflection of ourselves. It's like a mirror. Again, it shows us what each of us are capable of. If we, like David, harden our hearts to God's word. Uh, Now, I don't know uh, if you normally like what you see when you look in the mirror. Uh, Probably there's some different answers for all of us on that one today. Uh, But today, most of us, none of us will like what we see. The the mirror that we're going to look in today is not like the retail store change room. You know, the lights are down. It makes you look far more attractive than you really are. Uh, In this one, the lights are up and all the imperfections are there for everyone to see. Now, it could be that having heard that, you're tempted to look away. I want to say, Grace City, don't look away because today could prevent you from making the greatest mistake of your life. Uh, One commentator on this passage says we're all four steps away from murder. Part of what I want to help us see today is that actually all of us are capable of doing something like what David does. Now, it may not be uh, in the area of adultery or murder, but if David, if someone as honourable and as righteous as David could fall, part of what I want to help us see is so could we. Uh, 
The thing is, for others of us, uh, it could be too late. Uh, perhaps you've already made uh, the biggest mistake of your life. You've had the affair. You've stolen the money. You've committed the crime. Uh, some of you may think you've gotten away with it. Uh, as far as you're aware, nobody else knows, and uh, you've managed to repress the guilt, and you're sort of just moving on. Others of you are utterly broken. You've confessed your sin, and you're seeking to rebuild a life. Others of you, this is in your past, but it's actually ancient history. In God's grace and mercy, you've rebuilt a life. Reconciliation, where possible, has been brought about. And actually, you're able to be a testimony and encouragement to others who are still in the journey. If you're in either of the first two categories, even the third, I want to encourage you to pay attention when we get to chapter 12. Because if chapter 11 is this mirror where we see what we're capable of, chapter 12 is a little bit like a, a beautiful window where you get a glimpse into the kind of God that we worship and the way that he so wonderfully both rebukes but also restores those who fall. And so even though today may sting for some of us, and I do run the risk, I think, of reopening old wounds for some of us who've moved on from this. Uh, my prayer ultimately is that at some point, maybe it's in the past, maybe it's today, maybe it's a few weeks or months from now, you might taste and see the tender and restorative love of God. Because if God could restore and then shower his love and affection on someone as wicked and evil as David, how much more someone like you and I? Before we jump in, uh, let me make one final comment. Uh, as many of you know, we, we live in a culture that is uh, deeply aware and attuned to power imbalances and the importance of standing up for the victim, uh, particularly in cases of sexual abuse. Now, honestly, that there's actually a lot that's good about that because that's a biblical value. We're told to stand up and fight for, the, for injustice. But one of the uh, side effects of living in this current culture moment is that we can sometimes get sidetracked by questions that the biblical authors aren't really trying to answer. And so, for example, uh, what role, if any, did Bathsheba play in this whole thing? Uh, was she a willing participant or was she just a helpless victim? Uh, the truth is, we don't know. Uh, it's a valid question. It's a good question. But the author just doesn't give us enough to make conclusive decisions one way or the other. Now, it's not because he's unaware of power imbalances or even the wickedness and the evil of sexual abuse. If you come back next week, uh, part of what we're looking at will be 2 Samuel 13. It is a devastating and uh, incredibly confronting portion of Scripture because it recounts Amnon's rape of Tamar. But that's not today's focus. Actually, what the author is trying to do in today's passage, his burden is to zoom in on David to make sure that all of us can see the ugliness of the human heart and to know what we are capable of. And what's more, the reason he does it is that we might learn not to make the same mistake that David does. The thing is, uh, the risk of our current cultural climate is that we'll miss that. You see, our world likes to divide people up into oppressor and oppressed. And so if you have absorbed that mindset, 
then irrespective of whether you're a man or a woman here today, um, if you have experienced any form of oppression in the past, your temptation will be to identify with Bathsheba. Uh, now, I don't pretend to know what you've experienced. The last thing I want to do is make light of it. It's partly why I want to say come back next week, because we will actually properly, at least in some ways, deal with sexual abuse then. But one of the fundamental truths of the Bible is that none of us are only ever sufferers. We are also sinners. All of us have a heart that is capable of doing what David did. And so if I can, if you've been around for a while, this will sound odd, but if I can reverse our normal rule of application when it comes to biblical figures, at least for today, Grace City, you're not Bathsheba, you're David. Why? Because again, each of us has a wicked heart, capable of doing wicked things, if we harden our hearts against the word of God. So, uh, we're going to jump in. We'll be in both 2 Samuel 11 and 12. I'm going to take 11 first. It's a bit like a mirror. I want to show you two things. It teaches us about ourselves. And then chapter 12, it's a bit like a window. I want to help us see two things it teaches us about God. First of all, ourselves, then God. Let's jump in. Uh, as we jump in, let's take a look at verse 1. It says, In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rubber, but David remained in Jerusalem. Now, it's pretty uh, common on that verse to suggest that by staying at home, actually David is neglecting his duties. After all, this is the time when kings go off to war, and David, what's he doing? He's kicking back on his couch. Now, that could well be the case. It certainly seems to be implied by that phrase, when kings go off to war. The slight challenge is there, there is a little bit of a translation question over that phrase, and so David may not be being as lazy as we often assume, what is clear, however, is that it all sets the scene for what's about to come. Uh, David is in Jerusalem while the whole army is off at war. And so this is where we're going to start to learn our first lesson. I'm going to give it to you as we go. I'll give you each lesson as we go just to bring a bit of order and structure, which obviously I like, uh, to the, uh, our time together. So lesson number one, nobody is immune from sin's deceitfulness. Nobody is immune from the deceit of sin. Verse 2, one evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof on the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. Now, important to note at this point, David hasn't done anything wrong, right? There's certainly no indication that he's gone up on the roof, just maybe secretly hoping that he might catch a glimpse of a woman bathing. No, uh, and neither, by the way, has Bathsheba, uh, despite what Leonard Cohen says in his song, you know, saw her bathing on the roof, beauty in the moonlight overthrew you. No, she's not on the roof. David's on the roof. She's not. This is just two people going about the ordinary stuff of life. And what's more, if David had done what he should have done, that's all it ever would have been. Remember, David, so far, has proved himself to be a righteous and godly guy. And so what we kind of expect from a guy like David is to turn his eyes away, uh, walk down the stairs, go back off the roof, and to lead the lady to her bath. But at least on this occasion, that's not what happens. 
Instead, the glimpse turns into a gaze. A desire turns into sin. And before long, he's sending someone to find out who she is. Now, at this point, it, it could be that David has already decided in his mind he's going to sleep with her. And so, therefore, everything that happens next is really just a calculated series of steps to satisfy his lust. It could be. But I doubt it. After all, it's interesting to me that David's first step is to find out who she is. Right? If he'd already resolved he's definitely going to sleep with her, why not just send for her? He's the king, after all. So what I suspect is that what we're actually seeing next is a tragic example of sin's deceitfulness. Uh, in Hebrews 3.13, we read this, Encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Grace City, sin has a way of deceiving us, such that without even realizing it, we end up hardening, hardening our hearts to God and his word. So take David as an example. On the one hand, the lustful part of him clearly wants to sleep with Bathsheba, but he knows that's wrong. On the other hand, you can imagine a part of him thinking to himself, deceiving himself and saying, well, it, it's not technically wrong to find out who she is, though. Uh, I'm not satisfying my lust, I'm just satisfying my curiosity. And so in verse 3, we read on. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Uh, we know from 2 Samuel 23 that Uriah is one of David's mighty men. In other words, he is one of David's most capable and loyal soldiers. And so this is where it should have stopped. But again, you can at least imagine sin's deceitfulness leading David to say something like, oh, poor Bathsheba. You know, David is, sorry, what's his name? Uriah is off at war. She must be alone, uh, lonely. Maybe, maybe I should invite her around for coffee. That, that would be a nice thing to do, wouldn't it? And so in verse 4 we read, Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from a monthly uncleanness. That'll become important later on because it's evidence that the kid is not Uriah's. And then she went back home. Where did he have her brought to, I wonder? Was it straight to the bedchamber? Or was it, did they start with polite chit-chat in the parlour? Don't know. Uh, what we do know is that by the end of the evening, David had done something that only that morning he thought was probably inconceivable. Which brings us back to our first lesson. Nobody is immune from the deceitfulness of sin. See, we need to remember who this is. This is King David. Uh, I suspect most of us are so used to the story, David and Bathsheba, we know he commits adultery, that we, we forget how out of character this was for this man. Uh, just have a listen, though, to something that the author of Kings says. Uh, 1 Kings 15 verse 5, David had done what was right in the eyes of the Lord and had not failed to keep any of the Lord's commands all the days of his life except in the case of Uriah the Hittite. I doubt that could be said about uh, any of us, and yet it was said about David. David was normally an incredibly godly and righteous man. The reason we hear about it is so that we wouldn't fall into the same temptation. 
the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians uh, speaks about the failures of the Israelites and then carries on with these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. It took four steps for David to make the biggest mistake of his life. He saw, he sent, he took, he slept. He saw, he sent, he took, he slept. Uh, what step are you up to? Uh, again, it, it might not be adultery. Uh, everyone has a different area of weakness. But it could be. If it is, can I urge you, don't be deceived. Don't be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. You might be saying, hey, look, I, I'm just looking at the social media profile. There's nothing wrong with that, is there? Maybe you say, I'm, we're just chatting online. There's nothing wrong with a little bit of conversation. Maybe you say, it's just coffee. That was We caught up. There's nothing wrong with coffee, is there? No, there may not be. But remember, no one is immune. So it's also possible that sin is hardening your heart and that you're a step or two away from the greatest mistake of your life. Now, let me beg you, learn from David's mistake. Get off the roof, forget the name, send them home. None of us are immune. Lesson number two. Lesson number two, nothing good ever comes from hiding your sin. Nothing good ever comes from hiding your sin. Verse 5. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. It's the only thing Bathsheba says in the whole account. This puts David in an awkward situation. Because up until now, it is really only David and Bathsheba and maybe some of the messengers that know what's happened, right? It's their dirty little secret. But what we learn now is that in a couple of months' time, everyone is going to know that David and Bathsheba had more than coffee when she was brought to the palace. And so what does he do? Well, verse 6 tells us, David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite, and Joab sent him to David. Now, given everything we've seen of David prior to this chapter, we are expecting him to come clean. Again, David is not perfect. We have seen him stumble, but every time he has, he's been relatively quick to make amends. And so that's what we're expecting. But not this time. Uh, this time, he tries to cover it up. Uh, and as we read, that, there's two basic plans. There's a plan A and a plan B. Plan A effectively involves trying to get Uriah back to sleep with Bathsheba so that he's not suspicious of the kid when it's born. And so read in verse 7. It says, When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace and a gift from the king was sent after him. That's not really the main point, but can you just imagine how awkward that conversation was? How's Joab? Uh, yeah, fine. Cool. And how are the men? Uh, missing their wives, but like, yeah. Oh, and, and the war? Oh, yeah, to a war of two halves. Everyone's given 110%. Oh, yeah, yeah. Really proud of the boys. <laughs> and then it's like, uh, cool, great chat. Uh, anyway, uh, why don't you go home and spend some time with your wife? Uh, I've you know, sent a little special treat for you guys. You, you deserve a nice night together after some time away. Uh, 
So much duplicity and manipulation going on, isn't there? Uh, unfortunately for David's plan, however, it doesn't work. Uh, Uriah sleeps at the palace gate because he decides on principle it's actually better, uh, or it wouldn't be right for him to go home and sleep with his wife when all the men and the, te- the, the um, ark of the Lord are sleeping in tents. Now, uh, as we'll see in a moment, David has a plan B, but he wants to give plan A one last attempt. And so we read at David's invitation, Uriah ate and drank with him and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. Turns out a drunk Uriah is better than a sober David. Because just the plan doesn't work. What, what are we seeing? We'll look at plan B in a moment. What are we seeing? We're seeing that nothing good ever comes from trying to hide your sin. Sin is like mold. It grows in the dark. And so on top of the murder, we're now seeing manipulation. We're seeing deceit. We're seeing coercion. It's only going to get worse because he's going to move on to murder. Because plan B involves murdering Uriah and then marrying Bathsheba after he's dead. Verse 14. In the morning... David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so he'll be struck down and die. Now, uh, that's not exactly what ends up happening. Truth be told, if Joab did that, probably would have looked a little suspicious. Hey, everyone, come back. Good luck, Joab. Uh, It probably would have raised more questions than really David wanted. And so what actually happens is that Joab commands Uriah's unit, pursue the enemy right up to the wall, and it's at that moment that some archer on the wall strikes Uriah with an an arrow and he dies. But point is, Uriah's dead, and uh, David is able to swoop in and complete plan B by marrying Bathsheba. Mission accomplished. The sin is secret. Nobody has to know. Now, I call the lesson that no one or nothing good ever comes from hiding our sin. It could be, though, that you're at least not yet really convinced of that. Uh, so, for example, you could maybe point to David here and say, actually, you know what, the whole thing kind of turns out well for his public image. After all, now David is the compassionate king who marries the poor defenseless widow and brings her into the family after her husband was a tragic casualty of war. But on a more personal note, you might be tempted to think uh, it's better if no one knows what I've done and it all just remains a secret. After all, think of the children. Uh, Think of the damage it would do to the family. Better that I carry the guilt to my grave rather than get it off my chest and put everyone else through a whole world of pain. If that's where you're at, I want to encourage you to listen up because the truth is you may well be able to maintain certain relationships and protect people from pain by hiding the truth. But there's one relationship where you just can't do that. That's the most important relationship of all because you can't hide your sin from God. And furthermore, when, when you try to do that, you actually end up cutting yourself off from him. You know, it's, uh, God is only mentioned one time in this whole chapter. That's abnormal for a story about David. David's normally the upright guy who's seeking God's guidance and leading at every point. In this time, 
He's trying to hide the sin. He's trying to hide the sin. And so he's cut himself off from the one relationship that matters most. And so God is absent throughout the whole chapter right until the last verse. In verse 27 we read, But the thing David done had displeased the Lord. Uh, Don't fool yourself. Could be that no one else knows about your sin. Uh, But God does and is not pleased. The more you try to cover it up, the more you risk cutting yourself off from him. The lesson number two, nothing good ever comes from hiding your sin. So confess it, return to the Lord, because that is the only way to be purified from sin, uh, to, uh, to enjoy fellowship with him, and then to open up the possibility of fellowship with others. There's chapter 11. Chapter 12 won't take us uh, so long. As I said, chapter 12 is kind of a window. It's a window into which we learn some things about God. See, uh, there's a couple times in the book of 1 Samuel, so we're in 2 Samuel, in the book of 1 Samuel, where David is described as a man after God's own heart. And if you were with us last year in term 1 when we looked at the book of 1 Samuel, you might recall we said that phrase had less to do with how full David's heart was with God and more about how full God's heart was with David. Uh, Today's story is a good example of why that distinction kind of matters. Because given everything we've just seen of David in chapter 11, it feels like his heart is more full of wickedness really than it is of God. But what we're going to see in chapter 12 is that despite all that, in spite of who David is and what he's capable of, uh, God's heart is still full of David. And so we're going to get an insight into the way that God uh, relates to him or relates to those who love him here. So lesson one, the Lord rebukes those he loves. The Lord rebukes those he loves. Chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. Now, in the time of David, uh, the king is both the king and the judge. And so there's a sense in which he functions both as your majesty and as your honor. And so as far as David is concerned, really what Nathan is doing, or what he probably assumes Nathan is doing here, is bringing a story to David to get a ruling on. And so he continues. Uh, There's a rich man with lots of sheep and cattle. And then there's a poor man who just has this one little lamb. Now, aside from the fact that this guy is poor, he could be a pet owner in Green Square. right? His poor little lamb, it's drinking from his cup, it's eating from his table, he sleeps with it in his arms, it's like a daughter to him. right? Does this ring any bells for some of you guys? Anyway, uh, and then one day a traveler comes to town and he stays with the rich man. Rather than taking one of the many cattle or sheep that he has, the rich man takes the poor man's lamb, kills it, and prepares a feast for the traveler. Now, as readers, we've had the heads up. We know that this is just a bit of a parable to expose David, but he doesn't. He thinks Nathan's asking for a ruling, and so he gives it, verse 5 and 6. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. It's always easy to see the fault in others, isn't it? When he's not blinded by his own self-interest, 
David has no problem seeing the injustice of what's just happened. In fact, he even knows the law. Uh, Exodus says that anyone who steals a sheep has to repay the cost of the sheep four times over. That's what he says. But in the wisdom of God, uh, David is about to be, as they say, hoist on his own petard. And so in verse 7, Nathan says to David, You are the man. What a sucker punch that must have been, eh? Uh, Hebrews 4 says God's word is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. Uh, Nathan gets the word of the Lord and cuts him straight through, penetrates his soul, judges his heart and lays him bare. Having said all of that, I, I can't help as I read that little exchange... I can't help but wonder at the kindness and mercy of God in doing it the way he does. I mean, just think of the alternative. God could have sent Nathan in with a list of the Ten Commandments and confronted David head on and said, I hereby find you guilty of basically breaking all of them. I mean, think it through. Uh, at least half, murder, adultery, lying, theft, coveting. That's not what he does. Instead, he, rather than telling David what he's done, he shows him what he's done. Through the story, he, he helps David to feel the weight and the gravity of the injustice and the wickedness of what he's capable of. And it works too. Uh, we see a brief confession of him. I think it's verse 13. We'll look at it later. But many of you know, after this interchange, David goes and writes Psalm 51. We're actually going to read a little bit of it later on together. But possibly even that afternoon, he goes and writes it down and uh, and as you read Psalm 51, it's astonishing how many different ways David both describes his sin and begs God to take it away. And he says things like, blot out my transgressions, wash away my iniquity, cleanse me from sin, create in me a clean heart and deliver me from the God of blood, guilt of bloodshed. Uh, this is a man who has experienced the direct but also the loving rebuke of the Lord. And so he's deeply aware of his brokenness and he longs for restoration. Before we move on, it might be worth asking whether you've reached that place yet. Remember the lesson, the Lord rebukes those he loves. I make no claims to be a prophet, but this could be your Nathan moment. Maybe God brought you here today because he loves you too much to keep letting you walk in the dark. I don't know what your sin is or how those you love will respond if you come clean, but I do know that there is life and love with God. And so if you respond to his word, then restoration can be yours. Because that's the second lesson we learn from this whole thing. God, he not only, number one, rebukes those he loves, he also restores those he loves. Lesson number two, the Lord restores those he loves. We'll come to the restoration in just a moment. Before we look at it, it is important to note that David's sin has some devastating and tragic consequences for himself, his family, and the whole kingdom. Uh, two of those consequences are listed in verse 10 and 11. God says, Now therefore, the sword will never depart from your house, because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says, Out of your own household... I'm going to bring calamity on you. 
Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. Uh, We're going to see that unfold in the coming weeks because that story effectively dominates the rest of the book. Uh, Yes, David is restored, but there are devastating consequences for his house. And his house is forever plagued by violence and bloodshed. There's actually a more immediate consequence as well, though. Um, We heard it when it was read out before, but the son that Bathsheba bears to David ends up dying. And in a moment of tragic irony, he's actually the first of four sons that David is going to lose in the pages that follow. Remember what David said to Nathan? The rich man must pay four times over for his sin, and so he does. They're heavy consequences. But there is also beautiful restoration. There is some beautiful restoration. I want to show it to you because we see three, at least three, points of restoration in the passage. First, there's restoration in David's relationship with God. Verse 13, then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. Uh, In Psalm 51, David says, my sin is ever before me. God says, no, it's not. I've taken it away. Uh, I'm reminded of Psalm 103. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Yes, sin has consequences. But as far as the sin is concerned, God has taken it away. And there is restoration. Restoration with God. There's also restoration in his household. This one is remarkable. Read with me from verse 24. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and he went to her and made love to her. She gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon. This is the first time in the whole story where Bathsheba is not referred to as the wife of Uriah. Every other time, even after David has married Bathsheba, she's still called the wife of Uriah, back in verse 15. But here, now... She's the wife of David. And in fact, he also starts treating her like a wife for the first time in the story. The narrator says he comforted her. Uh, Reflecting on this moment, uh, the Bible commentator John Woodhouse writes this. He says, this is very difficult for us to comprehend. Did David now come clean and admit to Bathsheba his own role in her first husband's death? I'm sure he did. Did he explain that her child had died because he had so dishonored God's name? He must have done so. How is it possible for this man to be a comfort to this wife? It was a miracle of grace. The Lord really had put away David's sin. There's restoration to the household. Let that be a moment of encouragement if this is a part of your story. It is possible. Third, there's restoration of the promise. Uh, Immediately after we hear about the birth of Solomon, the narrator tells us in verse 24 and 25, the Lord loved him, and because the Lord loved him, he sent word through Nathan the prophet to name him Jedidiah. Uh, Jedidiah means loved by the Lord. This is the guarantee that God has not only blessed David's marriage to Bathsheba, but he's also standing by his promise to build David a house. Uh, Back in chapter 7, 
uh, God promised he'd establish the throne of one of David's sons forever. After everything that David's just done, though, you've you got to wonder if he, he questioned whether he just forfeited that promise. But no, this is, this is the moment the promise is restored. The promise stands because Solomon was the child through whom the promised son would ultimately come. If you open up Matthew 1, uh, it's the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in genealogy, you, you see David, you see Bathsheba, you see Solomon. In uh, the grace and the mercy of God, isn't it remarkable that he's able to take a relationship that starts on such wicked terms and then weave it into the story of redemption and bring grace and life to people like you and I? The Lord restores those he loves. And Grace City, depending on what's happened for you, I can't promise there'll be restoration of your household. But there can be restoration with God. And as we've seen here, he has a remarkable way of bringing good out of bad situations. And so I want to urge you, trust him. He loves you. And so no matter how rocky the road ahead gets, you can be confident that God is going to work all things out for your good and for his glory. Because the Lord restores those he loves. Let me close. Uh, as I close, I want to come back to the death of David's son. In verse 13 and 14, we read this. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord, Nathan replied. The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this, you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. For many people, this will be the hardest part of the story. David's son dies because of David's sin. You can't get around it either. Uh, it's pretty clear. God says, you're not going to die, but because of your sin, your son will. It's devastating. Uh, perhaps even for some of us, this is the kind of stuff that is why we're not a Christian. Uh, so what are we going to say to it? Well, the truth is, we don't know why God chose to do it this way. But I wonder if we push into the injustice, if we push into the pain for a moment, maybe we can have our own little Nathan moment. And so, for example, suppose you pluck up the courage and you turn to God and you say to God, God, how dare you? This is wrong. This is unfair. The kid was innocent. How could you possibly spare such a wicked man and allow the innocent to die in his place? I suppose you pluck up the courage to say that to God. I wonder if he might turn back and say, it's funny you should say that, because my son was innocent too. And yet at the cross, he died so that wicked people like you might live. Grace City, you're the man. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, what is ultimately a confronting passage because it reminds us of what we're all capable of. Would you help us to hear this word clearly? Would you help us, whoever we are, uh, to heed this word and to seek to be soft to your word and to listen and obey you all our days? Lord, all of us have fallen. 
at various points in our life. Some of us are deeply aware of that today. I pray that you would bring healing, you'd bring repentance, and you'd bring restoration. God, you are a good and loving God. And thank you that there is healing and restoration in your house. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.